Hi, I'm Don Crow. This week in the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, a special program will place Christ right at the center of Christmas. Advent is preparation of the heart and the mind and the soul for the coming of Christ into this world. How should we respond? We'll hear from Alistair Bay. What this actually calls for us to do is to do what Simeon did. And that is simply, if you like, to embrace Christ. We'll also take a look at two Christmas classics, A Christmas Carol. If they would rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. And the Charles Schultz classic. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? I think you'll enjoy this program. No, let me say this differently. I know you'll enjoy this program. We're glad to have you with us for this special edition of the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow, coming to you from the nation's capital, where each weekday afternoon you can hear my program on WAVA and across the country on WAVA.com. It seems like it happens every year. We celebrate Thanksgiving, and then, boom, Christmas is right on us. If you're like a lot of us, between church and family and work commitments, the preparations for the Christmas holiday are hard to fit in. When I speak of preparations, it's so easy to think of shopping and all of that. Our next guests are encouraging us to reconsider Advent and the preparation of the heart. Pastors Ray Pritchard and Dave Watson join Kevin McCullough on AM570, The Mission, in New York. Guys, let me ask you this. In the day and age in which we live, and maybe it's just because I'm an old man now, I wear glasses, um, there is something that I feel like that, that in my own personal walk has gone back to some of these old traditions and said, I want a little more liturgy. I want a little more uh, devotional. I want something to give me more meat than I've gotten in the past. Ray, is, is, it, is that a reaction to the mere shadow of nothingness that modern church has become in some circles? Well, there's no question that we have, we're in an age of the commercialization of Christianity and the dumbing down of the Christian faith. And this is one place where Advent can help us so greatly, because it takes us back to the Old Testament, back to the prophets, back to the ancient promises. It, it, it leads us to sing hymns like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It gets us grounded in the history and the prophecy and the theology of the coming of Christ. And I say to, to any of our friends, we live in a busy world. Everybody I know is running at hyperspeed. Well, Advent is a good time of the year to get your feet back down on solid rock spiritually. Take some time each day to prepare your heart for the coming of the Lord. So, Kevin, what you're experiencing is part of being a Christian in the 21st century. That's why this ancient tradition means so much to us today. Pastor Dave, I'll direct this one to you. Uh, in a in a metro area like the New, like New York City, in a in a diverse, uh, thriving community like what you serve on Staten Island, where you've got people working blue collar jobs and working sometimes three or four or five jobs per family to try to make ends meet, um, the idea of taking intentional time out has become something that is harder and harder for the average family to do. It, it seems al- almost impossible, and I think what we're asking folks to do is for their own benefit to carve out time. Uh, to, to make sure that the celebration of Christmas, uh, the celebration of the coming of Christ is meaningful. Otherwise, in, in all sincerity, uh, why do it? I think, you know, in, in, my, in my own world, uh, folks tend to think that you can turn on and turn off 
uh, God showing up, that it's somehow uh, mysterious. You know, oh, we turned the button and God showed up. And I think what we all, we all need to understand is that, uh, you know, God shows up, but, but, you know, he's always actually here. And if we took the time to listen to him, uh, to focus on him, to intentionally draw near to him, our experience of God will be, be really, really, really dynamic and life-changing. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what the Church has classically, in terms of its liturgy, used Advent for. And, Ray, you said this was newer to you. Uh, you grew up in a, in, a, in a tradition that didn't observe Advent, at least not very uh, carefully. I mean, is that even a fair assessment? I mean, come on, you, you observed Christmas, and you observed things building up to Christmas. Wasn't that Advent in a form that you're congregation just contextualized as being very different than what uh, Pastor Dave described coming out of the Catholic and Orthodox traditions? Well, that's a great question, Kevin. And my answer is this, that it's not that the church I grew up in, which was broadly evangelical, was against Advent. It just, I never heard that word. I was a, I was grown up in the ministry before I was aware of this season of Advent. And I know some evangelicals, they think, well, you know, the Catholics and the Orthodox, they started it, so we ought to be wary of it. But I don't think that's the case at all. This is, this is one of the oldest traditions surrounding the birth of Christ. I mean, the celebration of Advent goes back probably, in some directions, 1,800 years. It simply says that in this busy world, this fast-paced world, if we're going to really enter into what the coming of Christ means, we got to stop, we got to slow down. And let me just say amen to what Pastor Dave said. All of us, and I confess I'm guilty of what he said, you know, thinking, well, we can just think about God showing up. Well, we can just turn that on and off like you push a button. That's not right. Um, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. So one of the great thoughts is, let every heart prepare him room. Advent is part of preparing room for the coming of Christ. So I think it's a great tradition for Christians of all denominations to embrace. Hmm. Hmm. What were some of the, uh, what was Advent known for in its earliest uh, forms, Ray? I mean, how did, how did the earliest church um, begin to use this? I mean, because obviously even the evolution of how we observe Christmas took on a very different form of remembering from when the early church uh, was first formed. So where did, where did this begin to come about? Well, remember, in the early centuries, in fact, for over a millennium, most Christians didn't have a Bible. I mean, printing didn't come in until, what, 1400, something like that. Right, right, right. So for a long, long time, when you heard, I mean, we just take for granted it came about in the days of Caesar Augustus, and we can follow along, and today on our smartphones we've got, you know, 50 different English versions or whatever, but they didn't have that in the early centuries. And one way they they passed along the truth of Christmas was through the music of Christmas. So you've got songs like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, with each verse giving us a different name or title of Christ from the Old Testament, O Key of David, O Rod of Jesse, Emmanuel, God with us. So I think in the early centuries, Advent was a time for the singing of these ancient hymns based on Old Testament text to teach people who didn't have a printed Bible and wouldn't have one for centuries, here is the truth. 
the Christ has come into the world. And at least we can say this much, Kevin. Uh, we think we're so smart here in the, earth, in the 21st century, but the forefathers had it right. That for the great events surrounding the Christian faith, we need preparation. And Advent is preparation of the heart and the mind and the soul for the coming of Christ into this world. So I'm all in favor of it, and I think these ancient traditions have a lot to say to us in the 21st century. Let's face it, Christmas is on us now, and there are all sorts of things competing for this preparation of the heart. We have kids and grandkids and loads of sugary foods and gifts. How do we walk in wisdom through all of this? How about a fresh application of the Proverbs this Christmas? That's what Steve Estes is doing in his book, A Better December. He was a guest of Georgine Rice on KPDQ in Portland. What are some of the topics that Solomon addresses that relate to Christmas? Well, he talks about other people and how refreshing other people, you yourself get refreshed, which is kind of counterintuitive at Christmas. Uh, What's intuitive for us at Christmas is to hear our teenage daughter say, Mom, if I don't get the same style boots as Venus, the lead singer of the female rock band, the deep fried voodoo dolls, my social life is going (laughs) to crash and burn. And then to go out and spend $500 on them, even though you can't afford them. But Solomon says that that, I don't know, that hole in your own heart or your son's or daughter's heart or your husband's heart for things will never totally get filled. He says, death is never satisfied and neither are the eyes of man. He's talking about our cravings for stuff, just like the grave never has enough people in it, even though it's already full of people. So my cravings are never going to be filled with things. And so he recommends that I refresh others and thus refresh myself. I think, Georgine, the kind of thing he's talking about there is maybe saying to your kids, hey, kids, you know, Thursday night, save with me. Don't go out. And then Thursday night, we go to a local hospital, and we go up to the nurse's station, and we say, hey, listen, are there any people in this hall that never get a visit? And then you go to those rooms, and you take those people a plate of cookies, assuming that the nurses let you, you know, And you listen to those people's stories. Maybe you give them a Christmas ornament and offer to pray for them. Maybe give them a little New Testament or a little spiritual book like A Better December or something like that. And those people are going to feel loved. And my kids, Georgine, who are now in their late 20s and early 30s, they don't remember a thing that I bought them 20, 25 years ago at Christmas almost. But what they do remember is the experience of going to hospitals and, and doing this kind of thing with people, and how by refreshing others, they themselves were refreshed. That's just a little taste of the kind of thing that Solomon talks about, and that I talk about in this book, A Better December. One of the, um, the examples you use is out of um, the 14th chapter, 13th verse, that says, Don't assume that everyone smiling in the room is happy. Be cautious, for even in laughter, the heart may ache. Oh. We need to be aware of uh, the fact that not everybody is having the best time of the year. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, I'm glad you said that because, yes, at, a, at the office party, everybody's smiling and laughing and putting on a good face. But if that guy went through a trauma who is in the desk next to you, you know, he's smiling, but in his heart he's aching. And, and uh, Solomon says each heart knows its own bitterness, meaning that nobody can really know what's going on in his heart totally except he needs somebody stronger and wiser and bigger from the outside. And that's one of the ways, Georgine, that, that Solomon sets us up for the person who's greater than Solomon, for Christ. He just, 
He writes his Proverbs in such a way that he gives incredible advice for, for Christmas, and yet the advice, however good it is, still lacks something. And that's where, 900 years after Solomon, Jesus of Nazareth walks on the scene. And boy, was it a pleasure to write about him at the end of this book, because he's the answer to everything. Yes. At the end of this book, because he's the answer to everything. Coming up, what does the gospel account of Christ's birth require of us? See, what this actually calls for us to do is to do what Simeon did. And that is simply, if you like, to embrace Christ. Alistair Begg, when the Christian Outlook returns. Till he appeared and the soul felt its As we celebrate our 25th anniversary... The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy remains committed to preparing leaders who can connect America's founding principles to today's policy challenges. I'm Pete Peterson, Dean of this unique program, and as part of our celebration, I'd like to invite you to learn from one of our most beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. In this free video series, you'll learn the foundational principles of free market economics, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Since opening our doors in 1997, we at Pepperdine have believed that to truly understand even the most current political debates requires an understanding of first principles. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to our special Christmas edition of the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Don Crow. Each Christmas season presents us with the challenge to look at the materialism and to look at the culture and say, in some sort of emphatic way, no. But we don't want to just say no to so much of what the culture has made of Christmas. We want to, with enthusiasm, say yes to what God has done in sending His Son. Alistair Begg's sermon based on Isaiah 42.1, Behold My Servant, helps us appreciate just how much was fulfilled in the birth of the Christ child. It's something you might have heard on his daily radio program, Truth For Life. That's what he's saying here. I am God. If you want to know me, I am the God who has stretched out the heavens. It's a metaphor. But he says, I am the one who did it. I am the one who has established life on the earth. And I am the one who makes it possible for you to say on a Sunday afternoon, I think I'll take a walk. That's what it says right here, isn't it? He gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. Not the product of some self-existing evolutionary surge, but the direct act of a Creator who in His providence makes it possible for us to enjoy all these things. If we had Mahalia Jackson here, we would cue her in right now, and I would stop, and she could just sing, Who made the mountains, and who made the trees, and who made the rivers that run to the seas, and who put the moon in the starry sky? Somebody bigger than you or I. And it is He who lights the way when our road is long. It is He who keeps us company. What good is a God of your own creation? 
What good is a stupid idol that you have invented? What good is sex or money or fame or self-exaltation? How can you make sense of that, of your existence on that basis? You can't. And the reason you can't is because you were never meant to. And God loves you so much that he gave us all these things so that we could pick them out of the ground and say, oh, God must be fantastic to do that. How does that work? How does that cauliflower come out just exactly like that? This is fantastic. How is it that black cows eat green grass and produce white milk that makes orange cheese? How is this happening? How is this happening? Surely somebody must be behind all this. God speaks his personhood, his power, and finally his purpose. And just a word on this, because this leads us to where we're going. Well, notice his purpose. Having created his servant in righteousness, as he says in verse 6, having called him in righteousness, this takes us way back into eternity, where you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit entering, if we can speak in human terms, into a covenant with one another, and determining, if you like, if we can speak in finite terms, who's going to do what. And the Father says to the Son, will you go there and be the Savior for sin? And the Son says, I will. He says, well, then you are my servant whom I have called in righteousness. You are the one who will execute righteousness on the earth, thereby ensuring that that which is wrong is punished, and thereby ensuring that my mercy is revealed even in the expression of punishment. If you like, it is a conversation about the fact that the Son is going to be in the cross a Savior for sinners. And the Father is guaranteeing to His Son, the servant, the promise of His presence through it all. And it will be by the power of the Holy Spirit that the Son, the servant, is able to execute that which the Father has planned. The Son Himself performs, and the Holy Spirit is the one who exercises his gifts in and through it all. Again, when you read something like this and you say, well, is it, it seems such a big jump, Alistair, from, from here to, to the idea of the, the, the purpose of God is in a servant who's a son, who's a savior, and so on. Well, again, just read the Gospels. And read the Gospels. Just read the early chapters of each of the Gospels. And what do you discover? You don't discover invention. I suggest to you, if you've never read the Gospels, that there is nothing about the early chapters of the Gospels that will make you think that somebody sat down to try and hoodwink people. Who would start with a genealogy if you were trying to do a marketing program? Who would start with, and he begat, and he begat, and he begat, and he begat? It's like, man, you're trying to introduce me to this, and you start like that? Who would start in that way? Who would start in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and so on? No, when you look at it, you say... This is, a, this, is, this is a book, I think, that may understand me before I understand it. And you bump into Simeon, the old boy in the temple. And Simeon is there, and, and it says of Simeon, Luke says of Simeon, that he has been waiting for the consolation of Israel. You say, well, what's the consolation of Israel? It's the promise that God has made right here in Isaiah 42, that in his servant, all of the aspirations and hopes and dreams will be met. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, O little town of Bethlehem, how still I see thee rise. Above the deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go back, but in the dark street shineth 
the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. You see, the need of the Gentile and the need of the Jew is the same need. It is the need of Messiah Jesus. Not two salvations for two groups. It is one salvation in one person. And Simeon waits for the consolation of Israel, and he sees Mary and Joseph bring the baby in. And prompted by the Holy Spirit, he reaches forward and takes the child in his arms. And remember, he says, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. See, what this actually calls for us to do is to do what Simeon did. And that is simply, if you like, to embrace Christ, God's servant, God's Son, our Savior. And here, from all these hundreds of years away, the Word of God comes right down into our little room and into the framework of each of our hearts and minds and challenges us. Why don't you put up some of your false gods and let them speak? What have they been doing for you lately? And just when we're in need of counsel, just when we're in need of friendship, just when we're in need of forgiveness, he says, and by the way, here, here is my servant, the one I love. Here, here is your God, your servant. He's a king. He calls you now to follow him. Have you ever, as it were, taken Christ into your being as Simeon did? You can. It seems almost childish, but it's just childlike. God, I'm not going to trust myself anymore. I want to trust you. I'm not going to look for satisfaction in this anymore. I want to find it in you. Coming up, getting the narrative of the Christian story right. A corrective from Albert Moeller. Implying, if not stating, that the gospel story in Christmas is like a plan B. The Christian Outlook will be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. The babe in a manger, the Christ child, the one who came to pay a price for our sins. These are all essential elements of the Christmas story. But if we're not careful, we can still get the story wrong. Here's Albert Moeller explaining the backstory of Christmas. There are a lot of Christians who really do not tell the Christmas story correctly. They mean to. They're, they're well-intended they're just not accurate. Let me tell you how they end up mistelling the story. They will say, here's where Christmas begins. God looked and saw sinful humanity and decided to send his son. He decided that the son would be born in Bethlehem's manger, and he decided in response to human sinfulness that this is how he would save humanity. He showed his love to us, and this is how he did it. Folks, that sounds so close to the gospel, but it's actually not the gospel. 
Now, we know that because of John chapter 1. John begins not with the genealogy of Christ, as Matthew does, not with the visitation of the angel and the conception of John the Baptist and then the virgin conception of Christ, as Luke does. He begins in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So with a very clear reference to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, John goes all the way back by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say, you want to know when the Christmas story begins? You want to know when the story of God's purpose to glorify his name by saving sinners through the blood of his son began? You want to know when that story begins? It begins in the beginning. Now, that language in the beginning, making clear that this is Christ, who is the agent of creation, going back before creation, we are told that the son, the Logos, already was. And he not only was, he was with God. And he not only was with God, he was God. Verse 2 says he was in the beginning with God. In other words, the Christmas story doesn't begin in Bethlehem. Oh, we are so right to go there for the particulars of the birth of Christ. Those are the historic events that ground the very faith of the Christian church. That is where the gospel is grounded in history. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, the Apostle Paul says, and it was there in Bethlehem, in the fulfillment of prophecy, in David's city, that the Davidic Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ, was born. Thus, the manger scenes and all the rest, they're all pointing to an essential historical reality, the birth of the Christ in Bethlehem. But the story begins before then, and this is why the gospel is at stake. If we tell the story as if of implying, if not stating, that the gospel story in Christmas is like a plan B. Plan A didn't work. God's plan with the Israelites didn't work, so they came up with plan B. Or God's plan in creation didn't work. Human beings sinned against him, so he had to come up with plan B. This is where the Bible makes very clear that that's not the gospel. John says that this purpose whereby Jesus, the Son, would be the Savior, the Redeemer, the Davidic Messiah, goes all the way back before the world was created, before there were human beings, much less human sin. And this tells us that God determined to bring glory to himself before the world was created by creating the cosmos and especially creating human beings as the one creature made in his image. And then knowing that sin would happen, that this human creature would rebel against him, purposing before the human being was even created to save sinners through the blood of his own son, to bring glory to his name so that he would be known throughout eternity, not only as the creator of the cosmos, but also as the redeemer of sinners. And uh, that's the magnificent story of Christmas. And thus the story of Bethlehem, wise men, the whole, the whole story of angels, uh, everyone from Zacharias to Elizabeth, uh, everyone from Simeon, uh, and onward, uh, the Herod, all of these historic figures had their rootage and their place, as does Bethlehem itself in the grand purpose of God. Again, it is the Apostle Paul who tells us that it was in the fullness of time God sent forth his son. There's so much in that. All the anticipation, the longings, the yearnings of Israel for the Messiah. All of the nights spent in prayer yearning for the Messiah. All of the centuries spent in anticipation, yearning for the Messiah, it all came to a conclusion. Human history came to its culmination there in Bethlehem when Christ was born. And God said to Abraham in Genesis, through you and your seed, all the nations of the earth be blessed. 
And that's exactly what's taking place in Israel, in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, David's son is born. That is of the line of David. And there you have the Davidic Messiah. But he is also the son of Abraham, as Matthew makes very, very clear in his genealogy. And here you have from Abraham, the one who is literally the means whereby the covenant will be fulfilled, where through you and your seed, God say to Abraham, all the peoples of the earth be blessed. He came as the king of the Jews. He came as the Messiah, the Davidic king, but he also came as the savior of the world. Coming up after the break, we'll look at Scrooge. If they would rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. And the broader social context of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, when the Christian Outlook returns. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to our special Christmas edition of the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Don Crow. A Christmas Carol, the book by Charles Dickens, and the many movie adaptations that make their way to our television screens this time of year is one of the classic Christmas tales. But contemporary critics complain the film is anti-capitalists, or, from Christians, there's no Christ mentioned. We don't hear the gospel. In order to understand Dickens rightly, we need to understand the context within which he was writing and what he was trying to do. Columnist Jerry Boyer explains the social context of the 1843 work of fiction to John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word FM in Pittsburgh. Jerry, start us out by talking about Charles Dickens and what what the intellectual stew was that he was living in at the time in Britain. Well, the big social question in Britain um, at the time was not unlike you know, some of the big social questions right now. Um, in that you had a lot of um, tension over economic inequality. Um, you had a lot of people who were coming out of the poorer classes into the middle class. In that case, it was the Industrial Revolution. Um, and there was a lot of hand-wringing about all these poor people around and whether, you know, questions about whether there were too many of them. Um, and one of the chief uh, things that the intellectuals were uh, going on about and warning about is, that this population explosion, they didn't call it that, population explosion is a phrase that came up in the 1960s in America, but it's the same basic idea that this explosion of population, uh, particularly among the uneducated and poor, uh, would not lead to a crisis. And there was uh, an economist at the time, actually he was a minister uh, who was an amateur economist named Thomas Malthus, uh, who wrote a book called An Essay on Population, in which he said, you know, just the nature of human life is that the population grows faster than the food supply. So unless we do something about this explosion of population, then we're going to have mass starvation, we're going to have uh, you know, terrible hunger, we're going to have mass poverty, and perhaps revolution. Yes. And that was sort of the big social issue of the day. I've read you know, John Stuart Mill's writing a little later, but I've read a lot of the thinkers of the time, and that was the big crisis. 
the big crisis is what are we going to do with all these poor people and can we stop them from from breeding basically so charles dickens picked up on that thread and he famously wrote a christmas carol i want to play a clip for you from the uh the alistair sims version of a christmas carol and in it there are two men who come to ebenezer scrooge's office on christmas eve and they are asking ebenezer scrooge for a donation to care for the poor, and uh, here is what uh, Ebenezer Scrooge's response is. I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, sir, that is my answer. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. Those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and some would rather die. (sighs) If they would rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. And so there it is. That is the phrase, Jerry, decrease the surplus population. Yep, that's it. That, that's the line that uh, clued me in that uh, Dickens was engaging in this debate, that Dickens was taking on the great myth of his age. So, Jerry, he put Scrooge basically in the seat of Thomas Malthus. That's what he did, right. And that, that phrase, surplus population, is right out of Malthus's um, uh, essay on population. So Scrooge is, is basically writing, you know, uh, you know, less than a generation after Malthus. So the ideas are still current, and in fact they're growing uh, in Scrooge's time. In other words, the, the general view is that this, that, you know, that this um, crisis that Malthus warned us about is now upon us and it's getting worse. Um, and in, in my view, A Christmas Carol is essentially, as it's, it's, it's a literature, of course, not a, a polemical essay, but basically it is an extended... Christian refutation of the ideas of Thomas Malthus from the standpoint of a not just a Christian point of view, but a Christmas-centered point of view. So, Jerry, if Malthus was arguing, talk about who he was arguing with. Who was representing the other side? Uh, John Baptiste Say uh, was the other side. Uh, Say was a founder of basically the, uh, excuse me, a follower of the founder of free market economics, um, Adam Smith. Um, Adam Smith and Say were optimists. They believed that human ingenuity, that we are made in the image of God, and the human ingenuity made us productive, um, and that we were more mind than we were mouth, um, and that human productivity, uh, far from lagging behind population growth, would, would rush ahead. Uh, Adam Smith marveled at how people can become expert in technical disciplines, and the division of labor makes them so highly productive. And Say took those, those ideas even further. Um, and that, that debate's been going on, of course, since then. But, of course, their particular debate is settled. You know, we're talking about the 1820s, mm-hmm. 1830s, at a time when the warning was that we're about to enter into mass starvation in England and, you know, in the United States. Mm-hmm. In fact, economic historians now look at that as the great turning point upwards. Uh, it's known in economic literature as the takeoff period. Um, just around the time that Dickens is writing uh, is, the, is basically considered by economic historians to be the miracle of modern economic growth. Another Christmas classic familiar to nearly every one of us is A Charlie Brown Christmas. We're going to turn to my Salem colleague, Mike Gallagher, to hear about the show that almost wasn't. What people don't know is that the Christmas special almost didn't happen because some not-so-smart television executives almost didn't let it air. You see, Charles Schultz had some ideas that challenged the way of thinking of those executives 46 years ago. And one of them had to do with the inclusion in his Christmas cartoon of a reading from the King James Bible's version of the Gospel of Luke. 
CBS executives thought a Bible reading in a Charlie Brown Christmas might turn off a nation populated with Christians. (laughs) And during a Christmas special. Bill Melendez was the, the a, a Warner Brothers animator. He also supplied the voice for Snoopy. He said, we got a call from Coca-Cola. And they said, have you and Mr. Schultz ever considered doing a Christmas show with your characters? And I said, yes, it was Wednesday. They said, if you can send us an outline by Monday, we might be interested in it. So I called Sparky, Charles Schultz, on the phone. I told him I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. <laughs> Charles Schultz says, what's that? And I told him it's something you've got to write tomorrow. We learned in that American Masters series that Schultz had some ideas of his own for the Christmas special. Ideas that didn't make the network's suits very happy. First of all, there was no laugh track, something that was unimaginable in that era of TV. Schultz thought that the audience should be able to enjoy the show at its own pace without being cued when to laugh. CBS created a version of the show with a laugh track included, just in case Schultz changed his mind. Luckily, he didn't. Coming up... Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? More on a Charlie Brown Christmas on the final segment of The Christian Outlook. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. The story behind the story we now know as A Charlie Brown Christmas is a terrific illustration of how in 1965 and today, media executives fight against positive portrayals of faith. Let's return to Mike Gallagher explaining how CBS fought almost anything related to the classic from Charles Schultz. The executives also had a problem with the jazz soundtrack by Vince Guaraldi. They thought the music wouldn't work well for a children's program, and it distracted from the general tone. They wanted something more, well, young. And last but not least, the executives did not want to have Linus reciting the story of the birth of Christ from the Gospel of Luke. The network orthodoxy of the time assumed that viewers would not sit through passages of the King James Bible. There was a standoff, but Schultz didn't back down. And because of the tight production schedule and CBS's prior promotion, the network executives aired the special as Schultz intended it. But they were sure they had a flop on their hands. Melendez said they were freaking out about something so overtly religious in a Christmas special. They basically wrote it off like, hey, this isn't going to be interesting to anyone. It's going to be like a big tax write-off. And Melendez himself was somewhat hesitant about the reading from the book of Luke. I was leery of the religion that came into it, and I was right away opposed to it, but Sparky assumed that what he had to say was important to somebody, which is why Charles Schultz was Charles Schultz. He knew that the Luke reading by Linus was the heart and soul of the story. As Charlie Brown sinks into a state of despair, trying to find the true meaning of Christmas, Linus quietly saves the day. Now, the half-hour special aired Thursday, December 9th, 1965. To the surprise and shock of the CBS executives... 50% of all the televisions in the United States tuned in. The cartoon was a commercial and critical smash. It won an Emmy and a Peabody Award. Yes, it won numerous awards, but it also won hearts and minds and repeated viewings year after year after year. So it's only appropriate that we close the program with words of wisdom from Linus. Yes, the minor prophet Linus, toward the end of A Christmas Story. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? True, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And that wraps up this edition of the Christian Outlook. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers Charlie Richards and David Posian and Michael Cook, I'm Don Crow. Thanks for joining us. For me and all of my friends and colleagues here at WAVA and from Salem Media Group, we'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas. May the wonder and the ministry of the Christ child be at work in your home this holiday. Merry Christmas. So bring him incense gold.